Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing and all of our other podcasts over at blisterreview.com. My guest today is Alex Herbert, who is the founder of Kingswood Skis, which is located on the South Island of New Zealand. Kingswood Skis is a small and very independent ski company. Part of the reason why it is an independent ski company is because its founder, Alex, is an extremely independent person. Now, Alex also operates a ski repair business, and so when Alex is not building skis, he is often repairing them, and I think that combination provides a really interesting perspective on ski construction and design. So in our conversation here, we actually kick things off by just talking a little bit about what life in New Zealand has looked like in this COVID-19 era. And we talk about the Southern Hemisphere ski season and how that's shaping up. Then from there, Alex gives us a kind of quick backstory on the history of Kingswood. And then we start to nerd out a little bit about ski materials and sidewalls and cap construction and base material thickness and ski shapes and the like. Finally, we talk a bit about what exactly is going on in Kingswood's race department. It's definitely not what you might think. And then we wrap up by talking about what we're celebrating, and Alex offers up some very good suggestions. So that's what we've got in store for you today. And so now let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Kingswood Ski's founder, Alex Herbert. Well, Alex, how are you today and where are you today? Uh, I'm very well. Thanks for asking, Jonathan. I am um, perched up on the mezzanine of a um, cool old building that we bought a while ago in Littleton, New Zealand. And um, I have the luxury of having uh, the ski factory in our basement. Um, it's an old commercial building that we bought about four, 11 years ago and which was demolished in, after the earthquakes and rebuilt to a... Um, to our sort of design specifications. So, we're, yeah, a lovely big warm commercial building, one great big loft space upstairs and a ski factory downstairs with a kind of half pipe in the middle of it. So, yeah, <laughs> I'm living the dream as far as that, that's how things go. Mm. That's pretty good. Man, I, I got to say, um, my brain just loses. I've lost all ability to track time and years and things like that. But yeah. I'm trying to think. I mean, it's been several years now since we actually were checking out the Kingswood factory. I'm trying to think if you guys were already in the kind of rebuilt space. You did come here and visit. We may not have done all the finishing touches to it, but... I mean, it doesn't look like a new building. We kept all the old, it was a hundred year old building. So we kept all the old timbers and bits and pieces. And we tried to sort of re-put it all back together again. So it looks pretty old. And um, so yeah, you may not have gone, hang on, I don't remember a flash brand new building, but yeah, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't remember a half pipe. So I feel mm. a little gypped about that. Uh, yeah. Okay. So that's new-ish. <laughs> that's about, <laughs> it's about five years, five years old. That's okay. Yeah. But that takes up a large proportion of the ski factory. I sort of work around that now. Um, it's um, it's almost encroaching on our space, but luckily we're only very small. So, um, but I, I have been eyeing it up over the years, going, okay, I either need to ride this more or get rid of it. So, yeah, I go for the former. So, yeah, we're in we're in Littleton, which is on the east coast of the South Island. Um, it's actually a port town, and if I look out the window right now, I can see ships, and there's a Italian icebreaker parked out the front, which came up from uh, Antarctica just before the winter started, and um, it's been parked up here for a while. And so, yeah, it's quite a quite a cool little spot. Um, we 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 get snow once or twice a year here, but it's pretty low. We're right at sea level, and it's it's not really sort of any skiing around us. But um, the main ski areas are about a two-hour drive from here, so. I, you know, kind of fortunate in that respect. We've got beaches here. I can go surfing and we can go skiing in the same day. We're lucky, but... Um, From surf to ski, it's it's not the it's not the worst life. 
No, it's not. It's not. But it, it sounds pretty good. But it's actually, if you, <laughs> you're going to have a cold, grovelly surf and then a long drive and then probably, yeah, chances are it won't be the best skiing either. But yeah, we do get some good days, that's for sure. So I've been thinking about you guys a lot. And as I have just been trying to keep tabs on sort of what's going on in different countries, you know, during this COVID pandemic and the rest, and then thinking about an upcoming ski season in the Southern Hemisphere. I figured, I was like, this would be a good time to just catch up with Alex and sort of talk to somebody on the ground about, I I don't know if you care to speak for the entire Southern Hemisphere and the upcoming ski season, but certainly, you know, around New Zealand. I mean, how things are looking on that front. And then I figured, you know, we were overdue to catch up on how things are at Kingswood. So give me your sense of um, in New Zealand, how are things currently going with the COVID situation? We were basically free of coronavirus completely for two and a half weeks, but we've had people coming back to New Zealand from overseas, New Zealand, you know, residents who are, who, who are coming back uh, on repatriation flights and, and they're being put up in um, quarantine in hotels. And so at the moment, as it stands, I think there's seven cases in the whole country and they're in quarantine. Um, so they're overseas um, residents coming back to New Zealand citizens. So, um, you know, it's, it's business as usual over here. It was, you know, it got up to a thousand cases or something, which, which were during the lockdown period. And we were all, um, there was, you know, it was, a, it was a full stage four lockdown. So we weren't allowed to really do anything other than go for a walk um, or, or go to the doctor or shopping. Um, and that lasted for a month. And there was no skiing. There was no ski orders. We didn't get a single email. Um, I was like kind of stressing a little bit. But um, that dropped down to, to, you know, really quickly. And uh, I think our government has dealt with it really well. We're so proud of Jacinda Ardern and her team and what they've done. It was pretty harsh at first. And I guess a lot of people have lost uh, a lot of business and a lot of work as a result of you know four weeks of absolutely inactivity you know but the the result is that we're we're free of COVID now having said that just in the last few uh well last week and a half there has been these people coming back from overseas but they're in quarantine they can't leave their room everything's open ski hills are open it's business as usual there's no restrictions on the amount of people who are allowed to gather from our point of view here uh, it's pretty awesome but the only thing is that we have this closed border so there's no tourism there's no tourists coming to New Zealand, which means there's no awesome skiers from America coming to track out our powder, which is pretty awesome for us. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> unfortunate for you guys. Um, yeah, every cloud. Exactly. But um, I, I, I don't know what's happening in South America. I wouldn't even want to speculate. Um, and I know in Australia, they've still got some restrictions in place. So I think the ski hills like Threadbow and that are um, there's li- they're limited on how many people they can have. Uh, skiing on the mountain uh, in one day or how many lift tickets they can sell which you know once again is going to be for those that are there skiing it's probably going to be pretty good but uh it's not good for their uh for the company or any of the businesses associated with it was there kind of a specific date or weekend or week where most of the ski areas went ahead and opened you know most of the ski areas aren't even open yet in New Zealand. We've really, really only got um, Mount Hutt open at the moment. Um, I think, you know, it's our seasons are getting later and later and later. Uh, they used to put a date on opening. Okay, we'll open on June 24th or something like that. And that day would come and go and it'd be, you know, rocks. And so I think now it's pretty much just snow dependent and we've had a warm start to winter and it's another, looks, looks like it's shaping up to be another pretty slow start to winter um you know we we've got this problem in new zealand where our ski hills are located in the wrong place as far as i'm concerned uh, we've got great big mountains in the background with glaciers and have snow all year round and you just can't get to them but here and um on the east coast all our ski hills are very low altitude and they they you know it takes a a, a cold winter and a lot of snow before before they're even on because they're so rocky and so so, I mean, I, I, I'd hope to be skiing. I mean, having said that, people are skiing at Mount Hutt right now on man-made snow and a bit of natural snow, and it's not too bad. Um, but we just wait for snow. We really don't have an opening date. 
And in Australia, I think they've got nothing except for man-made snow right now. I could be wrong, but um, I don't know when this is going to air. You know, hopefully things will change. But we, we tend to, you know, we have this saying that snow in May will never stay and snow in June is still too soon and snow in July. And, and um, uh, that was it. It was snow in June was still too soon. And then it was like, you know, that was the end of the saying. Now we're starting to come up with things like, OK, snow in July. Well, if you're lucky or you know, so who knows? But um, September, October is always the best. Yeah, and it's funny. I mean, that's still kind of in my mind when I think about skiing in New Zealand and in the Southern Hemisphere. And so that's why I was sitting here sort of talking about the upcoming season. And by the way, I mean, I, I kind of feel like now we're very much talking about like micro weather patterns. And so I am not trying to make any definitive pronouncements here, but... I mean, I think that we are seeing this in the Northern Hemisphere as well. Like you're talking about in the Southern Hemisphere, the real start of the season seems to be getting pushed later. And I think we're seeing the same thing in the Northern Hemisphere. Again, as a generalization and as kind of a micro generalization, it's kind of, I think, for a lot of ski areas, we are seeing the highest snowpack of the year on like near closing day. And it's just, it's interesting, right? And um, in some ways, I I know that in our situation, it's because there's a lot of forest land contracts and the rest, but man, I think it would be interesting if we sort of opening dates and closing dates could align with when we're actually seeing snowfall and snowpack. That's, uh, that one's above my pay grade. Uh, yeah, well, it's a tricky one. I, we have this sort of discussion every year where, um, you know, the, the big ski fields open too early when there's no snow or it's a bit icy and hard and rocky. And then they close when there's just such a good base and when the skiing's so good. Um, and we get a lot of um, we get a lot of people coming into the into the workshop saying, you know, just first time skiers and they go up, they're fizzing on it all summer long and they go, oh, I'm going to go skiing this year. And they go up there, have a few a few hard icy cold days and then they go nah that's not for me you know and then I go well yeah you know you really need to try it in the springtime when it's warmer and there's heaps of snow and it's a longer day and it's just you know it's a much more pleasant experience if you're going to be starting off and a lot of the big hills are closed when there's so much snow and open too early and you know the, the the problem is that they've got to they've got to commit to staff and give them a date when they're going to start and stop and they, you know we rely on a lot of foreigners here for us no safety and ski patrollers and all that kind of thing so um so you know people flying in from overseas to do these jobs and and so that's the problem at the big resorts the, you know we're fortunate enough to have these little club fields which are non-profit ski areas within um, a stone's throw of us here in Littleton and they're much more adaptable and there's different levels of them as well. But, um, you know, one of the clubs that I'm a member of um, called Fox Peak is, um, you know, their motto is if it's on, it's on. So they only open if the skiing's good and they close when the skiing's not good. They don't have a snow safety officer. They don't have a ski patroller. They don't have a ski instructor or anything. They have an old lady who runs the cafeteria and sells tickets. And they have about six old guys that are diesel mechanics and can clear the road and that sort of thing. And they, I mean, that's kind of where I'm looking to, to be put here. Yeah, that's where I want to go skiing, you know what I mean? So, um, and, and they got some snow a couple of weeks ago and they opened for a day and we went up there and, you know, trashed our skis on the rocks, but it was great. And then, so they're still, you know, they're closed again now because it's got a bit warm and, They'll open again when it snows. So that's, you know, we've, we've got it all here. We've got all, all our bases covered. We've got the big commercial fields. We've got the club fields. And then we've got these kind of real um, malleable, small, small ones that you can just, you know, that will just open when there's snow. So who knows what will happen this season. But um, but from, from my point of view, um, I really don't focus much on, on, on skiing um, the first two or three months of the season because for two reasons, the skiing's not that great. And secondly, I am just, this is when I'm the busiest and, you know, that's kind of owner operator business and I don't have staff. So I'm the guy making the skis and taking the orders and on the emails and all that sort of thing. So I'm just 
too busy to ski. It throws a spanner in the works if, if it's good snow. Um, so <laughs> you're, I'd rather not know. <laughs> right. You're sitting there praying secretly like, oh, I hope it's not quite good yet. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a double-edged. It's, it's kind of a, yeah, it's a bit of twisting, you know, but uh, I don't know. I, I'd, I'd like it to be great because... Yeah, I want my friends to be having fun and I want people to be having a good time skiing. But at the same time, it's quite nice to know that it's not that good yet because <laughs> I'm busy. <laughs> so, Yeah, any yeah. of your friends listening to this conversation are going to be like, man, that guy Alex is the worst. He's sitting around hoping it's not good. No, I'm just kidding. I, yeah, I, I they, think that I think they they'll understand. <laughs> well, speaking of skis, I mean, I that, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to catching up with you just hearing about how things are going at Kingswood. And, you know, I wanted to talk in this conversation a bit about what you might be experimenting with in terms of materials or shapes, or maybe kind of conversely, what you're just doubling down on and being like, yeah, we, we're more committed to ever to like working with these materials, these shapes, etc. Maybe let's talk first about on the materials front. When did you start Kingswood? How long has it now been? We've been in business now for 13 years. Um, actually, we've been making skis for longer than that. But um, I mean, taking it seriously now for... Uh, gosh, couple weeks. Uh, yeah, <laughs> probably haven't. Still don't take it that seriously. Um, you know, like we, when we first started, it sort of happened so organically. I never set out to make a business or anything. I just started making skis, and um, and then for the next couple of years, I was making them for friends and things. And then we sort of thought about maybe we should give them a name. And then we kind of thought about maybe we should have a you know a business card or something like that that I could hand out to people and. And so um, we're going, yeah, we've been, we've been a legitimate business, you know, paying tax, I guess, um, for 15 years, I guess, yeah. And given that you are the guy standing in that shop and building stuff, again, to come back to the materials question, talk a little bit about, for people who might not be familiar, talk about some of your staples, and then maybe we can get into the question if you've been experimenting or playing around with stuff more recently. So uh, my first intention when I started making skis was to make good skis, skis that skied really well. That was my first thing. And so I thought, well, it had to have a wooden core and it had to have a sintered base and it had to have decent big burly edges because we've got rocky conditions here and so you know the, the, those were the parameters i needed strong skis that were stable and skied well and i didn't mind if they were heavy and so we you know we went out and started making traditional sidewall skis with wooden cores and base you know thick base material and that wasn't too hard to do to make a ski that was you know burly and strong and, and so we did that and then over the years I have been, my motivation has been more about making skis from a, from a ski maker's point of view. So using materials which are easier for me to use, easier for, you know, that bond better, that are, you know, I'll, I won't lie, that are more available, readily available and more consistent. You know, I, I, I made some skis out of a timber in New Zealand called Kahikatea, which is a white pine and it's extremely rare and it's not really ethical to use it to make a pair of skis, but it made a really nice pair of skis, you know. So I'd love to be able to make skis out of that, but it's just not, that wasn't an option. So, you know, so I evolved and started um, using material. I started, you know, sourcing materials through um, visiting trade shows in Austria and whatnot and and we discovered the bamboo, which we've been using ever since. And, um, you know, the, the current materials, which I use, the TPU, ABS, blend top sheets and uh, the, you know, the vulcanized rubber and the titanol binding retention plates and all the little sort of bits and pieces which go in the ski. I do have to say that I am really a low tech ski company. I've, I, I would love to spend some time and money on R and D of materials, but if it, I, I've, I sort of have this notion of it, if it isn't broken, if it's not, if there's nothing wrong with it, then I don't want to start changing it. Now I'm not closed minded to innovation and progression at all, but at the same time, I have to be realistic. I have a very small business. I only make 80 pairs of skis a year and I make them all myself by hand. And if I go out on a sort of limb and start mucking around with different materials and ski construction, 
and it doesn't work out, I just can't really afford to have warranties or issues. So any little changes that happen at Kingswood happen very slowly and progressively. I know the materials well. I know how they behave. I know how they're going to perform on different sort of levels. And now, you know, there's just so many combinations that you can do with thicknesses of core or layers of different weights of glass or carbon or different axes. There's just so many combos. It, it can get a little bit, uh, you know, it can get a little bit confusing. So I like to try and keep it simple. And of course, if I have any issues at all, which I have had in the past, then we address those immediately. So I guess that, you know, my, my materials are I've kind of honed them in, but having said that, I you know do I do want to I do want to keep changing. I don't want to become like I don't want people to think we're a bit stale or something like that. So you know, it's an interesting like dynamic, I think, and I think I do just personally tend to err a bit more or side a bit more with the like if it isn't broke, don't fix it. Uh, we just see so often companies that are sort of reaching and like oh, this thing is new. And so we're going to throw this new thing out there. And then, you know, a year or two later, they're like, oh, we kind of went too far in that direction. So now we're coming back and basically getting much closer to what we were doing two years ago. And I, I just, I really, there is still a soft spot in my heart for companies that just really dial in a product and then leave it alone dial it in and leave it alone. So God bless the companies that are living on the cutting edge and really trying to like experiment all the time with new materials and the like and, and pushing things forward and seeing where it goes and it's probably not all going to work. I don't think you need to apologize for being like, we are just slowly kind of sticking with a formula that, that works for us and uh, works for the people that get on our product. And we're not really trying to go like, like wander off into outer space when it comes to materials you know i i have um a ski and a ski repair business in town as well and when they get busy in there the, they give me a call and i come in and work there a couple of days a week or a couple of evenings a week and so i see a lot of equipment and i think it's really important for me to do that to to go in there and to be to be hands-on and tuning skis um you know last night i spent about four hours in there tuning a bunch of quite yeah it's really interesting to see um and and I, I i give them all a flex and a tweak and a twist and i check them all out and i love reading all the you know all the um all the classic things that are printed on the tops of the skis like tank build carbon mesh ultralight da 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 you know it's <laughs> it's great you know um and yeah, I just I, I feel like I've got an eye for something that's a pair of skis that I just know we're going to ski well now. And I think you guys must as well, because you just know when you, you pick a ski up and you have a look at it, if it's going to be good or not. Uh, and I also see a lot of the failings as well. You know, we um, like I said, it's pretty rocky here and pretty um, we have a really thin snowpack and the, the rocks are super sharp over here. You need skis that are going to last because it's like, you know, you, you hit a rock here, it's like being bitten by a shark or something, you know, they just get ripped apart. And um, the, the thing that really I, I see, you know, the, the feedback I get from people about my skis and the, the biggest issue I see from, from a skier's point of view here is just whether the skis are going to handle you know the rocks and the damage that they're going to get and so people are paying a lot of money for some pretty light skis these days and they're falling apart when they hit a rock now that those skis are designed for luxury of skiing big snowpack like in the states or in europe or something like that where they're going to work fine but over here it's a different story and so um especially when you add on all the uh, all the middlemen that clip the ticket on the way and the skis are quite expensive in the shops over here so so that's a big, big, big part of our ski construction um, motivation and, and, and big part of why we're reasonably well supported over here is uh, because we've got a reputation of building skis that you know, don't fall apart. And, and if you do end up, you know, hitting a rock and bending an edge or getting a compression, they're reasonably easy to fix as well. So I would love to have sort of a sort of rollover cap construction a little bit more because you know there's less damage to the top sheet and that's sort a of thing but it's expensive tooling up for that sort of thing like a vastly expensive and and i also think that it makes it harder to repair when something does go wrong so i you know the, the kind of i had to weigh up whether i'll deal with the sort of top sheet chips that you get from having a you know a, your top sheet just goes straight horizontal and then finish or having that kind of rolled over 
cap top sheet that, uh, and I, um, you know, I chose the former because, you know, I, I just can't, I'm such a small company, I just can't afford the, the tooling up of that, you know, to, to get these sort of kind of cassettes and everything to do that. And then also, you know, you might, you might avoid the cosmetic scratches, but you sort of open up a whole world of more substantial structural damage when you do whack rocks and and I've sort of seen that from I've learned that from being in the workshop um, tuning tuning and repairing skis. So, can you say more about that? I mean, what kind of damage are you seeing? You're you're saying again, we're just talking in generalizations now, but on some of the cap construction skis, it's easier for you to do just a sidewall repair on a horizontal edge as opposed to a rounded over cap edge. What what specifically? Say more about that. Like, what what's harder or easier to address? Okay, well, so you'll notice that most skis now have like kind of a semi cap and then a sidewall. So they they have a a very small sidewall. Sometimes it's only just under the foot, um, and then but the the top sheet rolls over the edge. Now, firstly, that's I might be completely wrong here, and I hope if I am, then someone would correct me. But you know, I'm assuming that that is to to stop the sort of cosmetic scratches that you get when your top sheet just finishes on a on a straight angle, you know, on a ninety degrees, um, and so and so you end up with a very small sidewall under the foot. And I did a repair on a pair of skis, a very nice, cool pair of skis, uh, two days ago, that had this construction, um, and the sidewall was. It was so poorly lem- you know, glued to the edge and to the core that it had all kind of just blown out. And so I had to remove this whole section of sidewall, which was, you know, around about a foot long. And the core was all shattered inside there. And it was just, it just seemed like they'd spend a lot of time on the cosmetics of the ski and to protect the cosmetics, but sort of skimped a wee bit on the structure of the ski. So, so I go for... You know, our core bamboo core goes right out to the side. We've got a, we've we've done away with our plastic sidewalls. We used to use ABS sidewalls, and for two reasons. Firstly, when we hit a rock um, hard enough, you'd you could end up with the sidewall delaminating from the core, and then you end up with a compression, and then it's quite large, not quite a lot of surgery to repair it. It's repairable, but. So our, our bamboo core goes right out to the side and it's a cheaper way of constructing the skis, I suppose. But it's also, I find it's a much stronger construction. It does chip and it does scratch. And after about a hundred days on it, it looks a bit rough, but you can sand it back and oil it and it'll look awesome again, you know, but if you're not that kind of person or if you don't care about the cosmetics, don't worry about it because it's not structural. But if you do end up hitting a rock hard enough that you get an edge compression, you can literally just get a chisel in there squeeze it back out, straighten the edge with some pliers, put some glue in there and it's fixed, you know. So from my point of view here, um, it's, a, it's, it's kind of like a repairable item that's pretty easy to repair and it's, um, you know, it doesn't, it's strong. I feel like it's stronger. I've hit some serious major rocks and I get a lot of, you know, I see a lot of my skis back in and they seem to be holding up pretty well. So kind of tick that box. I'm pretty happy with that, you know, so... I love that you're bringing this up because I know for a fact, a lot of ski builders will hear it from their customers. Like if those customers are seeing some top sheet chipping and people are livid, right? These customers are livid. I just bought these skis. I only have five days on them and these are all chipped up. And it's like, dude, that is a cosmetic thing. And so I actually appreciate, like, I I feel like there isn't just the right way to do this. So I think you've just said really well, it's like, and, and again, there might be different companies that are listening to this and they're like, well, we do things in such a way where we feel like our cap construction kind of can provide the best of both worlds. I don't know who that is, but let's say they exist. But what you're talking about is still something I think that frankly, a lot of skiers need to understand that like cosmetic top sheet chipping doesn't matter. And I think you've made the case. It's like, look, yeah, our skis might get some of that, but it actually is a a design that, in your experience, it's something that we feel better about when there's real damage being done, structural damage. We can come in and fix that more easily. And I wish, 
if, if, if some amount of people hear this conversation and then are like, maybe I shouldn't worry about top sheet chipping, um, then yeah, we've done a good thing. We've done a good thing today. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it doesn't it just doesn't end there either. I mean, I, I really do. I could harp on for hours about um, about construction and and you know good and bad points. But uh, the the one thing that really amuses me is when is when the cosmetic side of the ski dominates the construction of the ski. And I and I see it a lot in snowboards. And I'm talking about die cut bases. And I'm talking about you know like jewel um, jewel colored sidewalls. So so you can get you know a really cool looking sidewall. But you're trying to glue two bits of plastic together, which inherently don't bond that well, and they'll fail there as well. And um you know all sorts of all sorts of kind of things to make the ski or the board look really cool in the shop, but just you know, it's it's a little superficial. Um, and I like that. I, I and I come from a sort of background of you just you, it wasn't cool to have brand new looking gear. You had to go out and trash it real quickly. Like if you were the kid at the skate park with a brand new deck, you just even if you didn't know how to rail slide, you'd go run run up and down, push it up and down the handrails. That so looked like you could rail slide. You know, do some damage to it, make it look a bit used. So um, I, maybe I'm coming from the wrong sort of perspective here but i um yeah i i see a lot of a lot of things where the die cut base starts to you know lift up or the the, the black material is harder than the white material and so after a couple of tunes you start getting these kind of funny waves in the base and i mean like it's okay that's that's starting to affect the ski your cosmetics are starting to affect the ski you've got to question whether that's really um you, the, <laughs> you're comfortable with that or you know, i don't know but for most people, it's fine because they don't, you know, they're not that hard on their gear or they ski five days or 10 days a year. And hey, and that's probably who most the manufacturers are making their skis for. And yeah, I mean, I get called out a lot here. We, I think being in New Zealand um, and there being sort of this kind of number eight wire mentality where people feel like they just, they, you know, they buy something that's got to last them a lifetime and it's kind of, kind of, you know, and if it doesn't, there's something wrong with it. So, uh, um, I can't escape that, you know, and I, they, the people I sell my skis to live right here and I see them on the ski hill. And so, um, first and foremost is, is, is strength and longevity. Now, having said that I do, you know, my, like I said, the bamboo sidewalls, they will, especially in sort of corn snow they'll will it's a it's they'll they'll wear out you know they get abrased they get you know it's only timber it's not plastic it'll sort of start to start to sand away and wear out but um but it is you know it's purely cosmetic and you can easily do 200 or 300 days on a pair and it'll be you know they're, they're still fine they might not look particularly amazing there's definitely a lot of chips and scratches but yeah, they're still good, and I and I know that from tuning them. So you know, kind of good. I'm happy with that. Oh, another thing is the thickness of the base material, and I think this is something that you guys maybe could consider. I don't know how you would gauge it, but when you're doing um, testing skis, I would, if I didn't make my own skis, I would really love to know the thickness of the base material when I go out to buy a pair of skis because. It's a big, it's, it's an important thing. Once again, maybe not if you're skiing in steamboat or somewhere, I don't know, wherever you get heaps of snow and you're not hitting many rocks. Um, but if you're an adventurous skier and you're somebody who likes to charge and hit, you know, you're taking your skiing lines where it's rocky and you might get core shots and things like that. It makes a massive difference if you've got thick base material to having thin base material. And so... I think that that's a real, you know, that's some that's somewhere that needs to be addressed. And I, I mean, you can save a lot of weight by having a a, a very thin base. Um, so a lot of uh, you know a lot of touring skis and carbon carbon touring skis and lightweight skis have got a thin base, and that's fine. I get that. But um, when you when you get a pair of freeride skis in that are brand new and straight out of the factory, and they've got less than a mil thickness base, then that's not really i wouldn't be happy buying that ski you know um because you hit a rock and you'll get a core shot and it just gets expensive and it's yeah it's just not it's not i don't think it's very good so you know i've i've got pretty thick base material and also i don't chew you know they're, they're pretty flat when they come out of the press so they don't need too many passes over the stone so 
um, to the point actually where I have to supply um, offcuts of my base material with the skis because the base material you um, you buy to do base patches in in your workshop isn't as thick as ours so there's no point doing a base patch with some other base material because you'll end up with a recessed patch so and how thick i mean do you have like a single thickness for all the skis you're putting out what are you going with these days so i i use 1.8 mil base material which doesn't sound like much but it you know when you when you get down to it it's actually quite a lot you know it's 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 chunky um there's some pretty light touring skis out there now and they might come out of the factory with only about a 0.6 thick base material or even thinner than that and yeah and i don't know whether that is because it's being ground so much to make the ski flat before they package it up and put it in the shop but i suspect they just use a very thin base material because it's it's a huge savings of weight and money as well. So, um, yeah, so we start with a 1.8 base material. I wouldn't, you don't need to go any thicker than that. It starts getting pretty heavy. Um, and then, yeah, and then just not, not, not grinding too much. So I probably only need to put them over the stone. Well, I mean, it, every, there's so many variables. It depends on your stone speed and this, that, and the other. But they don't, well, I don't have to grind very much off them. They're reasonably flat when they come off the, off the press. You know, I I definitely think when you said that companies are going with thinner bases, you know, you said on the one hand, it might be to try to lighten up the ski or they may be trying to save money. I honestly do come back to, I think companies are very, very much trying to just make things lighter. And I still think as a generalization, lightweight backcountry skis and then lightweight kind of 50-50 skis that are, you know, allegedly ski grade in the resort and for touring. This is still a dominant a dominant influence right now on ski manufacturing in general. And so if a lot of companies are like, well, crap, our skis are now quote unquote heavy compared to so much stuff on the market. It's like, well, if they feel like consumers don't understand why this ski's heavy and this other one is so like quote unquote nice and light i i sort of understand like the impulse but again i think it's important for consumers to know we we talked about you know maybe you shouldn't worry about cosmetic little chips and scratches it's like here's another one like before everybody gets so excited about their lightweight lovely new ski it's like compromises have been made to get there and so I think, again, we bang this drum a lot, but I do think it's just a good one to keep reminding people, like, you're going to get compromises if you're, and likewise, if you're dragging a super heavy ski up a mountain that you're ski touring on, it's like, well, yeah, you've got a super thick, durable base and you're dragging a much heavier ski up. So it's all about pros and cons. And I think our job is just to get people clear about what you're getting and what you're giving up. It's hard to make a stable ski that's light, you know, it's, that's, that's really hard. And I've, 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 that's been somewhere that I've really tried to, um, so, so put some energy and some time and focus on is, is to make, you know, cause we do a carbon range of skis, which is all carbon. And so we substitute all the, all the fiberglass in the ski with carbon. And I, I've, I can make some pretty light skis now with the same 1.8 thick base and edges. So I, it's good durable ski and it's quite light they come in at around 1.8 kgs which is not you know ultra light but it's pretty light um and that's and that's for you know that's for a 185 ski that's 104 underfoot so you know we can do it but it's 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 whether i actually want to be skiing on that at the end of the day because i um i just i love I love having a bit of weight up at the tip and tail of the ski. And in fact, I've, you know, I go touring on my carbon skis and I love them because when I'm touring, it's always smooth and I'm miles away from anyone else and the snow's smooth and that's great. But when I come back onto the resort, I almost want to stick my skins onto the top sheets of the skis just to give them some, you know, some, some weight. Um, just so, because otherwise they just bounce around too much, you know, so um and and i i get this a lot from customers saying oh you know i i've got an old pair of so-and-sos and they weigh a ton and i just i get tired at the end of the day so i want some light skis and i go you know what 
if you have lighter skis, you might end up being even more tired at the end of the day because you're gonna, you, your skis are bouncing around the whole time, you know, it's hard work. Yeah, unless, yeah, so, so yeah, I'm you know, slowly <laughs> trying to educate people at the same time, but it's, you know, there's, there's other places they can save some weight. I think you need a wee bit of weight at the tip and tails of your skis to make them track along and to make them more stable and stop bouncing. And so, yeah. Let's move on. And I want to talk a little bit about shapes. And again, on this front, just how how much you've kind of been doubling down. I mean, you just talked a bit about like, hey, I personally like having some weight at the tips and tails. But I'm just curious if you're kind of finding yourself maybe more committed than ever to kind of a similar general ski shape, or if you're finding yourself moving into or curious about like more tip and tail taper tell me what's going on with with your skis these days on that front my i i still am the ski tester at kingswood i mean i i have i have lots of friends that ski on them too um i think they're just all being polite you know no one really gives me any kind of good decent constructive criticism i i make changes when i feel like i need to make changes they're all pretty subtle changes. You know, I've made about four changes to what used to be the rocker type, and now it's called the uni. Uh, I've made changes to the rocker profile. I've made changes to the side cut and to the taper and the tip and tail shape. Just subtle changes, but they've definitely made a difference. But I just love side cut. I, I, I still haven't found too much side cut, if you know what I mean. Even in a big fat powder ski like the, you know, like the SMB or the... Um, or the uni and i i think if it's matched with you know decent amount of taper you can and and just the right kind of camber and rocker profile you can get a ski that you can, is, is that feels buttery but you can rail along on the groomers as well and so it's kind of um I, i'm curious about some of these new shapes um i don't you know there's there's two things that motivate me there's one is going skiing on them and if they work fine that's fine that's great i don't need to change anything it's when it's when they don't work fine that i go okay now what do i do here what how do i how do i make this ski ski this kind of snow better and i think it's the snow the the one the one variable or the one condition that i really struggle to to nail is kind of crusty snow so when you've got stiff snowpack and a, a wind crust or something like that, it's trying to find something that's going to ski that well. And I, I always just generally go for a fatter ski because you know, I, th- I feel like, oh, okay, I won't break through the crust as much. But I think um, I think this is just this is I'm just telling you what I've done in the last few sort of last year and a half of as far as changing things. And I think I found having a stiffer tip actually helps with that. But then there's compromises too. Um, you have a stiffer tip and it tends not to ski nice dry powder so well. And you go to Japan with a stiffer tip and it's kind of not nice, you know. But over here, for the kind of powder we get here, I found that that real stiff in the shovel is awesome for breaking through or for not breaking through, should I say. Um, the sort of stiff wind crust that we get quite often, which is almost renders the snow unskiable. And it's just the snowboarders who are having a good time and all the skiers are just sort of joker flipping everywhere. So, um, yeah, and so I do change things. Um, I change them pretty subtle things. And every now and then when I get a ski that I absolutely love, I go, right, this is, I'm onto something here. And I kind of, I, I basically just copy that down through the range. So I'll, I'll sort of scale it down. So that's what I've done with the uni. I made the ski a while ago now. I made it seven years ago. Uh, the the 191 uni, uh, which was back then, it was a 193 rocker type. And it's still the same length, but I just measured it again. And I was like, oh, it's actually shorter than that. I don't know. Must have been a cold day or something. Anyway, um, and so that ski, I don't know what it was, but it just kind of nailed that one. And I love that ski and I skied it um, all sorts of conditions. And it just, it's just got the right side cuts, just got the right dimensions. It just feels balanced. It feels, it just rips, you know. Um, and then I sort of had slightly different designs of that ski down through the range it went to a 187 then it went to a 177 and then there was a 165 and a 154 of that but they were all slightly different and 
they none of them skied as well as that longer one obviously for me but you know as scaled down so then i grabbed that ski and i basically scaled it down through the range and now it's like it's the same ski but just it gets smaller and smaller and smaller and it's it seems to work people love that ski and i just don't want to change it now you know like I feel like, okay, we've had that ski for a long time. Like we've had the SMB for a long time now, but I mean, no one's complained about it. And it, I, every time I get on it, I just go, this is a really good ski. You know, what should I change here? And I kind of scratch my head and go, well, maybe I'll just look at changing the graphics. Or <laughs> maybe I don't. Yeah, that's, uh, I think, still still a bit of a favorite of mine and, and still is a pretty unique ski, you know, even in that kind of category, skis of that width. I mean, obviously, it, the, you know, the width changes a bit, I guess, depending on length. It's still an interesting one. And I guess my review from many years ago now uh, sounds like would still be pretty relevant to the the SMBs you're, you're making today. Yeah, I mean, we've we've done some subtle changes to it. Like I said, um, changed the rocker profile a wee bit and um, flattened out flattened out some curves. But I mean, it's still the same ski. And yeah, I mean, I, I kind of I suppose when I designed that ski, I, that was what I um, that's what I really wanted is something with low profile tips and you know a bit of taper. And but what motivated me to make these skis in the first place was I couldn't get the skis I wanted in shops. Um, but now if I didn't have a ski company, I'd be stoked because it's like, I could walk into a shop and be like, yeah, there's a lot of tasty skis here now. And that's kind of cool. So, so I suppose that we're all, we all sort of came to the same conclusion at the same time that this is kind of what works and this is what's good. And as somebody who literally tests skis for a living, I literally couldn't say which other ski on the market is basically the same as an SMB, at least the SMB that I reviewed. So you get, there's, there's definitely, you can go buy skis of that width, but they often, I mean, I think the biggest thing, again, people can just read my review, but the SMB is a pretty subtle rocker profile. And now I know you said that you've updated it and maybe there is more tip and tail splay now, but Usually what we're finding now is if companies are making a ski that wide, there is just a shit ton of tip and tail rocker on it, which is great if you're going to be skiing in really deep powder. But that was my whole thing is like, well, if you're actually skiing on a wind affected day or there's four inches of snow or you can there's one or two lines you can hike to where you ski and you're going to get into some nice deep stuff but then you're going to be skiing a lot of chop for the rest of the day those were some of the things that really stood out to me about that smb and that platform so you know just you know just my humble two cents but uh, yeah look i don't i i think if you've got i mean from from designing skis point of view i just think that you don't need too much rocker. I mean, I love rocker, tip and tail rocker. I think it needs, it, I'm totally, I think it's the, the way to go, but you don't need much at all. You only need a very small amount before it starts to kick in and you realize that it's there and it's like, you know, it's not like an old ski where you actually had to unweight the ski and all that. It's like, you don't need much before it's, it's it's working you know and and once you start getting too much rocker in my opinion you start to end up with kind of plows snow plows you know and i don't like that feeling either and i've i've taken a bunch of skis to japan and with various amounts of rocker and i i did not like on the deep days the really deep days the skis with too much rock would mike would i consider too much rocker they stayed on the rat you know i didn't like the way they they kind of plowed through the snow more. There was, okay, it was just a little, perhaps it's my skiing style. I still like to kind of drive a ski and really kind of charge into it and push, push on the fronts of my boots into, into, into the snow. And, um, and I just found that I kind of almost went over the handlebars quite a lot. And I did make some SMBs with an extraordinary amount of rocker or what I consider extraordinary is probably not ridiculous compared to some of manufacturers out there but yeah um i personally didn't like it so if i don't like it it doesn't make the cut that's <laughs> basically the way it goes take it or leave it yeah 
What are you doing these days um, in terms of, is it still like 100% custom made to order or are you building some kind of stock skis to have on hand and available? What's that ratio look like for you guys these days? Um, yeah, it, we've gone, we've gone, uh, we gave it a little go to do some stock. Um, we, a couple of summers ago, we thought, all right, well, you know, summer's my quiet time. So why don't I just make a few of our best selling skis with a standard top sheet and we'll sell them at a reduced price. And that was our stock. And, um, we didn't sell a single one. Um, and we'd get, you know, we'd get people ordering, exactly the same ski but they wanted it bespoke and i'd be like well you know i've got one on the shelf here it, it, pretty much the same ski <laughs> well no i want you know so that was we realized that's who we are that's what we are you know we aren't um that's kind of our that's our little niche i suppose and i'm happy with that and it's cool it's so we're totally 100 percent bespoke um i do i i do think that you know, it's a big part of us is having that sort of relationship with our customers. So someone might go to our website and have a little look and then there's they might click on the recommendations, fill out a wee form, it comes to us and then I reply back to them on what I recommend might be a good ski for them and then we start a dialogue and that's kind of cool and it's a really nice way to, it's a nice way for me to get to, to decide, you know, what's going to be the right ski for them and it's also for them probably quite a, quite an interesting experience and, and might get them G'd up a wee bit on, on getting some skis made for them. And, you know, and then they got this kind of in their head that they're going to get something that's made for them and that is going to work. And, uh, and I think that psychologically, that's a big thing as well. When you throw your skis down on the snow for the first time and you go, right, these are for me. These are my skis. This is the way it should be. This is what the guy said I should be on. Um, I think you're off to a good start already, you know, so, um, uh, and, you know, as long as, as, as long as they're happy with them, of course, but, and, and, you know, so, um, and the other thing is that we keep, uh, we keep that sort of, um, ongoing relationship with our customers as well. I'm, I'm really, um, it's really important for me to get feedback and I'll chase people up and say, you know, Hey, what did you think of those skis? And, and they go, you know what? In that first morning, I wanted to ring you up and kill you. And I was like, okay, cool. And they're like, and then, and then after lunch, something kind of happened, you know? And then the next day I was like, we wanted to ring you up and take you out for dinner. You know, so I was like, cool. All right, sweet. So, you know, I like that, that they're not always going to be just, Oh, yep. Straight away on them. Yeah. Easy. No worries. Yep. That's it. I don't know. I mean, I can say that, again, as somebody who tests a lot of skis, not every ski is just you click in and it's point and shoot and everything feels, you know, like absolutely intuitive. And so I, I'm not mad at all about a ski that you have to kind of figure out how to play it, as it were, to switch metaphors. You know, if we're willing to jump to kind of a, you know, musical instrument metaphor or analogy, it's like, not all pianos play the same way or guitars certainly don't. And, um, I think a ski, there is such a thing as a ski that is still a very good ski, but doesn't want to be skied any old way. I got to ask you on your website, which is kingswoodskis.com. Uh, there's a little section, real little tucked away called the race department. Mm. Oh, you found it. <laughs> I did. I did. And then I clicked on it and um, turns out that what the ski that's listed in the race department section is not a ski that you're probably going to find on any other ski manufacturer's race section. Do you care to talk about this at all? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was kind of a little bit of a you know, we were kind of taking the piss a wee bit here um, because we, you know, I, I guess we're so small that we're not really going to have an R&D department, are we? You know, it's kind of not so, but we, we, we sort of thought, well, hey, we, we do have some kind of skis that we we kind of feel a little bit like they might be kind of pushing the boundaries of skiing and stuff. So we I think what we I haven't looked in there. What have we got in there? The mega fat yeah. or something at the moment. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Um, so that's a ski that um, 
that was designed by myself and my friend Sam, who spends far too much of his life in Japan. And, um, and he was like, make me a fat ski. And I did. And then he said, make me a fatter ski. And I did. And he <laughs> came back the next year and was like, I need a fatter ski. And I was like, dude, this is getting ridiculous. And he was like, um, just just hear me out so then i went to visit him and um you know i don't know have you been to japan um yes it's yeah so they get a lot of snow and a lot of low angle stuff as well so um so you know a lot of trees and a lot of low angle and a lot of deep snow and so it was actually a you know kind of it was quite cool he definitely he definitely needed a very fat ski so that was when it was uh, he's a big guy too so we started um so we, we the mega fat was born and then um over the years we've sort of we've kind of changed it we've given it some taper and some rocker and i mean the original mega fat was it had no rocker at all it was like a cambered ski that was 150 underfoot and um and 1.99 long so it was like almost just under two meters long and um and i mean just epic like you could, you could you could just point straight line anything um and land anything um as long as it was super deep snow but um over the years we've kind of like i thought you know, I, I thought okay this is really fun in powder but it just absolutely sucks you can't carve it at all or you can't ski it on going back to the ski hill you know you feels like you want to break your knees and things so we've, we've given it some side cut and given it some rocker and it's and making it out of full carbon as well because it was such a heavy beast you know because it's so big so making it out of carbon has made it has shaved some weight off it and it's still heavy it's still so stable enough you know so pretty awesome it's pretty cool but um so in that little race department room we kind of sort of said look if you've got any wacky ideas we're open to suggestions you know we this is for we don't want to be flooded by people saying yeah i want to ski that's 106 underfoot and it's got tail rocker but no tip rocker or something you know i'm not in it's not not really where i want to go with it but um someone has something really different and interesting then we're totally up for um we're up for talking about it but only in the summertime not at this time of the year when it's busy <laughs> so. last question for you this is something that i said on our last gear 30 podcast that i kind of just wanted to start doing on a weekly basis because i don't know it just kind of felt like each week it would be useful uh in these times to take a moment to identify something that we are celebrating. <laughs> so um, in keeping with that newfound initiative, I wonder if I might ask you to name something that is worth celebrating in your world. Can you name for us just something that in your life or in these times you think is, uh, is currently worth celebrating? Gosh, there's so many things worth celebrating. I, I'm talking personally here. I think this whole the whole month of lockdown that we had here in New Zealand was was brilliant because it it grounded people. We all went back inside our houses and started hanging out and talking to our families and friends, you know, and and started cooking again and started. Um, you know, pattern just 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 focusing on what was right in front of us rather than, you know, we've, we're getting so life is getting like the world's getting smaller. We can sort of at the click of a finger, we can see what someone else is doing overseas. But we suddenly were f thrown back into back into literally this tiny little bubble um, and we weren't really allowed out of that bubble in the first couple of days was a bit tricky but then we started to realize that you know this is awesome so this is something I'm quite thankful of and then I think potentially from that people have realized what's important in life and I mean to see what's happening in the states right now that with Black Lives Matter I think it's fantastic that people are standing up now and going you know enough's enough it's getting ridiculous and I I don't want to get political here, but we do we do all watch the news coming out of the states at the moment, and and a lot of the time we've either got our jaw on the ground, or you know a hand on our heart, you know. So there's a lot you know there's a lot happening, especially for you guys over there, and I just think you know potentially, gosh, I'm only a ski maker, I shouldn't get too like 
No, this is good. No, <laughs> you're not. You're also a human being uh, with yeah. a, with a perspective. So let's mm. let's not get too insular here. Right. Yeah. No, I I think that's I think that's all great, and um, I think one of the things I'm going to raise my glass to is the leadership that you guys have had in New Zealand. Let's just say that on a couple of different fronts here, I'm not sure that we are winning here in the United States on the leadership front. And there has been a lot of confusion and there has been a lot of outrage, I think, as a result, again, on a couple different fronts. And so, you know, I think some of us are here looking with a bit of envy at other places where there just seems to be a clarity in terms of how they are, uh, you know, having to approach uh, and deal with a number of issues, sometimes simultaneously. And so uh, I'm going to I'm going to raise the glass to the New Zealand leadership. Yeah, I'll drink to that, okay. too. Yeah, although it's only nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and, oh, <definitely. laughs> yeah, no, she's awesome. She's awesome. And she speaks for a lot of us here. And of course, just like anywhere, there's there's people that are against her and um, and um, but they're pretty few and far between at the moment. And so we're it, it's it's nice to be. It's nice to be in a position where you're actually proud of your government and where you can actually say, wow, that, that was a good decision. I'm, I'm really into that. Maybe I'm just getting older and conforming more, or maybe we actually have a pretty cool government at the moment that are making some pretty sort of savvy decisions and, and, you know, and actually talking to people and finding out and having dialogue and discussion and going, okay, this is what you guys want. All right, let's do that. So it's nice, and um, and I and I think it's great that people um, that people overseas are aware of what's happening here too, because it might you know inspire people to demand that from their leaders as well. And I you know who knows, but I think I think what's happening you know with you guys. I mean, sometimes you got to sort of find you got to sort of lose yourself before you can find yourself. And I think that um, I think I think sort of out of from out of all the turmoil, some pretty cool things potentially could be happening. Who knows? We'll see. <laughs> That's certainly what we're hoping for, you know, and I last week I I actually uh, the in the what are we celebrating portion of our Gear 30 podcast, I raised my glass to the second half of the year 2020 because I do think there are reasons to be optimistic and there's a lot of work to be done and good right? Like, good, let's, let's keep getting better and finding ways to improve. You know, I think it would be amazing to actually look back on 2020 and be proud of either what happened as an international community in terms of dealing with a global pandemic, what's happened in our own country in thinking about and improving race relationships. And hopefully that is something that the rest of the world can look at and, you know, make improvements in their parts of the world. So I don't know, I, I guess I am generally an optimistic person. And I think we have some real legitimate reasons to be optimistic. You gotta, you know, it, this does inspire optimism. You know, seeing, seeing people standing up against inequalities and seeing, you know, seeing how, when people come together and work together, you can sort of kind of beat a pandemic, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's quite inspiring, you know, in a way. And I, I mean, I, I suppose it does depend on what kind of person you are, whether you're a glass full or glass empty, but um, I'm a relatively cynical person and I feel pretty good about this year. You know, I'm, I'm in the luxury of being in New Zealand right now. So, you know, I, we don't have any restrictions on our lifestyle, but um well, other than not being able to travel, but you know, um, that's cool. I think uh, if you can, if you know, if you guys are positive over there, well, that's awesome because there's so many, there's so much awesome stuff from that we see coming out of the states. There's so many characters and so much brilliant innovation, and it's just, uh, you know, I guess that you kind of need a new leader. Is what I, is what it looks like from here. <laughs> you might be right. You might be right about that, Alex. Uh... Well, hey, listen, I really appreciate the time and really it's good to catch up with you and, and um, get your perspective on some different things. Now, I guess, uh, you know, it's it's four o'clock in my, you know, in my neck of the woods. So I'm going to keep drinking this whiskey. 
you, on the other hand, should probably get to work. And so I'm going to let you get back to building skis, but it's fun to catch up. All right. Thanks for the chat, Jonathan. And thanks for the support. And, you know, you guys are doing a great job out there too. It's nice to see some, you know, some critical kind of analysis and detail on on skis. And I certainly, if I wasn't making skis myself, I'd be, uh, I'd be, you know, I was, I, was, I was out there buying skis. I, I'd be trolling through all of your literature to, to figure out exactly which ones, which ones for me. And you do sort of, yeah, it does make sense. It's good. Hmm. Well, appreciate it. Well, thank you, sir. I will let you get to your day and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Nice one. Okay. Cheers, Jonathan. See you later. That's it for this edition of Gear 30. Thanks to Alex for the conversation. And you can go to kingswoodskis.com to see more of what they're up to there and check out some shapes and then send Alex an email and see about getting a pair of Kingswoods made for yourself. I also want to thank the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode, and thanks to all of you for listening. Now, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we will see you back here on Gear 30 next week.